HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today, our guest is Heather Cox Richardson, the historian. We are gobsmacked to have her on our podcast. Her daily blog, Letters from an American, is required reading for many of us. I wake up and read her first thing. Others can't get to sleep without taking in her incredible and seemingly effortless gift of putting the news of the day, no matter how distressing, into an unstuffy, chatty historical context. We know she's been up till the wee hours writing it with footnotes. Her podcast, Now and Then, is a joy, and her Facebook Live lectures don't even get me started. The woman never sleeps. But who knew she was a foodie? She cut her teeth making whoopie pies with her sisters in Maine. She's an expert bread baker, the keeper of family recipes, a lover of community cookbooks, and in our conversation, she uses her uncanny insights to put food into a political, historical, and cultural context. Who knew that Popeye and olive oil had an interesting origin story? Let's have a listen. My favorite food history story for the world, I don't really know the world history at all, but I actually told this in my survey class the other day, that a popular fancy dinner in medieval Europe was to take a swan, clean the bird out from its skin, cook the swan meat with spices and things, and put it back in the swan carcass and serve it that way. That sounds disgusting. Yeah, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> but, but quite meat. a presentation. And actually, i got to say, the meat back in the swan skin kind of did me in. I was like, you know what? My stomach is too weak to study this. <laughs> Today, this podcast is, let's talk about food. And since it's my conviction that everybody has a food story, 
Well, first of all, it's a real pleasure to be here and to get to talk about something other than politics, although, of course, food does involve politics more often than not. But indeed, I have lots of food stories because cooking and, of course, hanging out with friends over food is my happy place. When I, you know, I'm trying to relax from actual work, what I do is I go into the kitchen and generally start to bake. Well, where did the baking gene come from? It's funny, you know, I was actually in my 40s before I realized that not everybody baked. I really thought that that was normal, that that's what people did, because when I was a kid, mother was not fond of cooking. That was not her happy place. And as a result, my sisters and I all became pretty good cooks pretty young, but we also used cooking as a way to hang out with our friends. So from really early days, my memories of my sisters were always of them baking. And the big thing in Maine, of course, at the time was whoopie pies. Friday nights, my sister's friends would come over and they would make whoopie pies, which is not a short process, let me tell you. (laughs) And so I just assumed that that's what people did. And I was baking and baking pretty seriously from the time that I was 12 at least. It's just always been part of my life. And like I say, it never occurred to me that it wasn't part of everybody's life. I literally had children of my own before I realized that not every mother made all their bread and not every mother made the cookies and the cakes and all that. You make all your bread? Not anymore because I basically live alone and I just don't eat that much of it. But yeah, I I bake all my own bread. And when the kids were growing up, yeah, and pies and cookies and all that, you know, but baking to me is this wonderful form of art that goes away. So you can experiment, you can do new things. First of all, it tastes really good, but it's a way to be creative and to use your hands and use textures and to use flavors. And then it disappears and you get to do it all again the next day, which I find one of the few forms of artistic expression that I have the time and the energy to do considering how much else is going on in my life. I am totally with you on that. I always think of it as edible art or arts and crafts, and I can do it, and it occupies me for that hour or so while my my head is someplace else, my hands are right here, and then you get to eat it, and then you get to begin again. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I'm not sure if I even care if people eat it, but I like making it. (laughs) Well, that and when you have little kids, I always found it was way easier to do things like make all your bread because it was always there. You just, you know, if you had the big bags of flour or whatever, you didn't have to worry about, oh, no, I'm out of sandwich bread because it, once you're in the habit of it, it doesn't take that long to do. I like to eat, but I there's a limit how much you can eat. I could do things like make a dozen muffins and then, you know, eat the one or two I wanted and then just take the rest into graduate students or whatever. And everybody always thought I was doing something nice. And I'm like, you don't get it. You know, this is you are actually making sure that I can do this again tomorrow. I totally get that. I make something and then I have to send everybody home with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. my kids are like, no, mom, you've got to stop. My daughter, actually, when, when it was just the two of us at home, she gave me, for my birthday one year, she gave me miniature versions of everything, a miniature loaf pan, uh, miniature pie plants, because she's like, mom, the two of us cannot eat the amount of food that you're producing, and I can't keep coming home and having you go, do you want a piece of pie? So can you please bake smaller from now on? I love that. I love that. Can you tell me what it was like having dinner at your house growing up? 
boy, I hate to say that's a long time ago. Growing up, we had very typical 1960s meals. As I say, my mother was not into food as an art form so much as a general sort of baby boomer kind of household where she would sort of look and see what the trends, you know, I still have an incredibly soft spot for that green bean casserole with the the French onions on top, although I don't think I've had it since mother passed. (laughs) So we were all there, but the food was not, it was much more about conversation than it was about the food in that house in the 1960s and the 1970s. But maybe more interesting to you and to your listeners is that when my parents passed, when we were quite young, dad died when I was 19 and and mother died when I was 24. Oh dear. And I was the youngest. My siblings and I kept their home, which is on the coast of Maine. So we're talking, it's that 35, 40 years. In the summer, my siblings and I and their spouses and their children and their friends and the neighbors and all that get together every night for a big family dinner for the summer months. And that is, I think, maybe a throwback to what people imagine when they think about big family dinners, because we take turns, um, not officially, that's not a calendar, but basically you cook every three or four days and make a really nice meal for however many people might be coming. And it could be eight or it could be 30, and it, you you move accordingly according to that. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing because one sister lives in Europe, one sister has lived in the Midwest and elsewhere, and my sister-in-law lives in New Hampshire. And over time, you recognize the transmission of, if you'll excuse me, culture and how things change, especially across the table. My European sister, and this is dumb, but you know, I looked at her one day and she was cutting up um, chives and other herbs with scissors. And I thought, I've, that never occurred to me. So now, of course, I cut everything with scissors. And that's just one of the many things that she does. My other sister makes bruschetta to die for. And so you you pick up these different techniques and these different recipes and bring them into your own home. One of my other sisters cuts cuts the, her butter in a really interesting way. And I thought, well, I could do that, you know, with that sister, but also with their friends. So my lobster stew recipe does not actually come from somebody in Maine, which is probably sacrilege to say. It's from one of my sister's I think it's her godson. I've kind of lost track of who's related to whom, but he's kind of family at this point anyway. And um, he's a phenomenal cook, a phenomenal cook. And he was there one year and made um, lobster bisque in his own way. And actually, I, I messaged him on Facebook a few months later and said, Frederick, how did you make that? And so just just a few weeks ago, I'm like, I want to make Frederick's lobster bisque again. So I pulled up my Facebook account and found where he had explained how you browned the, you know, different pieces of the lobster in order to create, you know, certain flavors. That's probably more when you think about the Richardson family and eating. You probably think less about my mother and her lamb patties than you think about what's happened since they passed. I... I'm just so moved by what you say. My feeling is that it is this process of bonding over food and bonding about food as something that is love that brings people together. Yeah, but premise of this podcast, people bond over food because it's something we all have to do every day. And it's a great way to, to take a moment out of your day and spend it with people you love.
How does that play out for you and your family and your kids now? Do they cook with you or do they cook? Surprisingly enough, my mother had a theory that cooking, she used to say the cooking gene skips a generation because her mother, whom I never knew, was a terrific cook. And my aunt was a terrific cook. Mother, as I say, didn't care about cooking. And my sisters and I are all uh, pretty avid cooks. And so theoretically, my children should not cook. But it's not. that's actually not the way it's played out. They're all three of them very good cooks. One of them cooks uh, primarily vegetarian food, and um, one of them is big into smoking foods and baking wedding cakes. Yeah, the cooking gene did not skip, although I will say they are far more adventuresome cooks than I am. It is also a product of this generation. It's sort of anti-technology, anti-virtual is one of those things that people can do and they do with a passion. I'm fascinated by the 20-somethings and 30-somethings dedication to cooking. Isn't that fun, though? You know, it's one of those things that everybody said, oh, you know, pretty soon we're just going to be eating out of packets or whatever. And, of course, once we started down that road, people were like, no, 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 no. We actually kind of like working with our hands. What do you think the impact television and food and that whole sort of celebration of food has meant to American culture? So I can only answer that in a really limited way because I actually don't watch television, not that I object to television. I just don't have enough time to watch it. I have observed from what I read and anecdotally, so, you know, and again, the plural of anecdote is not data, but it does seem to me that people find things like the British Baking Show very comforting. And they like, first of all, the idea of um, of the creativity involved in cooking. But the other thing that I have noticed, and again, this is completely anecdotal, is that people really seem to like the combination of television shows that include travel and cooking, because so often food reflects um, the, the culture of a place where you are. And so, again, it kind of go back to the theme of this podcast, food and this the accessibility now of other cultures and other cooks through the medium of television or through YouTube or through all the other places that people can learn how to do things has helped to bring the world a little bit closer, perhaps, and mm. restored for a lot of people their ability to be creative in their own homes in a way that perhaps they, they couldn't be um, in, a, in a time when... People were more focused on, you know, the convenience of takeout rather than the creativity of your own kitchen. I've been very interested from a historical point of view about the the role of restaurants as they've become sort of the gathering place for people. And that seems to be something that has exploded over the last 20 or 30 years, that that's one of the sadnesses of the post-pandemic. We see that this third place that the restaurant was for so many people or the bars were or whatever are challenged. And I wonder what you think about that. I actually think this is this is fascinating because one of the things that I think you're identifying is the larger move in America away from fraternal organizations and sororal organizations, the idea that you're going to go hang out at the Elks or hang out at the, um, you know, the local community club, which was um, – really a hallmark of American culture between the Civil War and the post-World War II period. Many people in the late 19th century belonged to a number of fraternal organizations, so many that you don't even know the names of them. They were so, you know, they were ubiquitous and women were the same. And really with the rise of television, 
that emphasis on those organizations and on organizations, established organizations like churches, for example, tends to fall by the wayside. So you cease to have those community organizations where people hang out, those community structures. And there's a period when people simply hang out at home and watch TV. But as you say, more recently, there was a move toward having those gathering places be restaurants and coffee shops and places where you could go meet somebody and hang out. And of course, I'm a prophet of the past, not of the future, but this has really interested me because one does wonder if we're going to return to a community-based society where people either hang out in restaurants and bars and coffee shops or whether there is perhaps after the pandemic going to be a community move back where people are tired of hanging out and doing everything on screens and in fact are desperate simply to see people face to face and as a result are doing things like going to church and not necessarily just for the religious impact of that but for the the gatheringness of it if you will and whether or not we might see a resurgence of community organizations and the jury's really out on that but um but but I, I it feels different to me than the 1980s did which were such an emphasis on individualism and doing things your own way and you know you had your own experiences and increasingly um, you know the idea that you can have your custom made news your custom made experience at an amusement park your custom made whatever there seems since the pandemic to be more of a well wait a minute you know what about gathering with people what about being out with people and one of the pieces with the restaurants right now and with um, the service industry right now is, of course, we've got a real mismatch between people who work in those industries and the need for those industries. It strikes me that that's a larger societal work issue and childcare issue that's going to have to be worked out before we really figure out where restaurants fit again in our society. But in a larger scheme, the idea of having community gathering places post-pandemic strikes me as being something that historians and, and people who study societies are going to watch because it feels really, it feels like in many ways we're coming out of the Reagan revolution of the 1980s and the resurgence of community organizations um, certainly is on the horizon as one of the hallmarks of that. Hmm. That's a very interesting take. The apex of sort of virtual life was hit during the pandemic. And people are always out now and saying, I miss seeing people. And I think they would not have known that they miss seeing people were it not for this incredibly imposed um, purda. You know, we we saw no one but people that we uh, we had vetted in every way. Um, I do think restaurant industry is going to have to change significantly. I'm with you on that because it worked for the diners and it might have worked for the owners, but it did not work for the – and I speak as someone who used to own three restaurants. It did not work for the people who worked in the restaurants. Can you put food in America, in society and culture in a larger context for me? And we'll be back with Heather Cox Richardson in a moment. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. 
we'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Heather Cox Richardson. Can you put food in America, in society and culture in a larger context for me? Because food is integral to everything humans do, um, you know, you could take that conversation in any number of different ways. And the first one to that I that I think of when I think of food is, of course, the regionalism of food, and the degree to which there are markers, cultural and especially regional markers, around American foods. And you even see it on those maps. You know, what's the most popular food in Idaho, for example, or what is the food that represents Lincoln, Nebraska. And I always find them fascinating because, of course, half the time I haven't heard of them at all, including the ones that are supposed to be the hallmark of my state. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I don't eat that. I've never even heard of that. Um, So the regional nature of food in America and its ethnic and racial boundaries um, within those regions, uh, to me, is absolutely fascinating and says an awful lot, again, about where we are as a society when we adopt new foods. The other aspect of it that is interesting to me is with food is the the relationship between food and politics. One of the things that is very important about American voting until really the 1890s is that people voted around things like barbecues. So the the idea Excuse which is me, they actually did their votes at at barbecues? Yeah, you had you had barbecues to to get people out to vote. It wouldn't necessarily be just at the voting places. Um, political parties would throw throw picnics and things for people to come get food. And, and you know, that's a long tradition in human history where, um, where, where social ceremonies of either religious ceremonies or political ceremonies are around sacrifices, for example, because that meant that people who wouldn't otherwise have access to meat could, in fact, have access to meat or some kind of delicacy. And the same thing is very much true in 19th century American politics. If you want to get, um, you know, the Democratic Party elected in New York City in the 1880s, for example, or the 1890s, you're going to throw picnics and you're going to um, have ice cream available for the kids or lemonade, things with sugar in them. And you're going to have meat for the adults, for example, often around the issue of barbecues or um, or any kind of, of specialty that, that people could um, – you know, again, claim as their regional food. So there's, a, a you know, examples of presidents going to clam bakes, for example, and things like that. Mm. In terms of American history, a relationship between food and um, and being part of a party, I mean, a party like a, a celebration party, but also a political party to have access to delicacies and so and, and foods that you wouldn't otherwise get in these party, these fun times. And that political aspect of food in America, I think, is really very important because who goes to those? Who gets that food? Who pays for that food? And how do you return that favor with your vote? That sort of political history of food in America um, is a really interesting one. Well, I don't think I've ever heard of that. I mean, I certainly know that there are 
in in Boston we call them having a time that um a politician will have an event and people are invited in and they drink and they eat and they give money and they essentially reaffirm their connection to whoever the figure is who's running but i wonder if some of this plays in in a subtle way to the uh, the new voting voter suppression rules in texas where you can't feed anybody in line you can't give them any water in line do you think that there's a connection a kind of a, an atavistic connection to that you know i'd never thought about that um and, and and i guess my inclination would be to say no in the sense that the idea was not in those days that you had to that you were stuck in line so this is a question of actually keeping people at a polling place so they can have the the ability to vote but the connection between food especially but food and drink and politics in America is is ancient and says a lot about inclusion and exclusion. I, I'm going to pick here again on the Democrats in um, New York City and in, in the 1890s if you are going to a democratic event, and eating your ice cream, your kids are getting ice cream or whatever, it is expected that you are one of the in crowd. You're going to vote Democratic. You're not going to, I mean, it's not like you would necessarily, although you might get thrown out if they knew you were a Republican, but it's a question of who's welcome at that particular table. And that um, connection there between food and politics is, as I say, I think a really important one. And it's, well, you know, theoretically, we tried to get rid of that in the 20th century. But as you point out, perhaps we didn't. Well, it speaks to me of the personal relationship to food. I mean, it couldn't be more visceral. You know, they're not coming together for a specific HR this or Senate bill that. They're coming together around feeling good, supported, and as you said, included. That is how people join parties. Well, and this is one of the things that that really gets the the city parties going in the 19th century, and as opposed to the earlier parties that are more rurally based, is the need for people who move to urban areas, particularly immigrants, to have food security, basically. And so if you were an immigrant coming into, and maybe I shouldn't keep picking on New York City, although I'm only doing so because that's what I've been But we've all heard of New York City, so that's a good one. (laughs) Okay, so... So, you know, if you're just off the boat and you don't have a job yet, you can trust your local party boss to make sure your family has food. So somebody like Al Smith, who becomes instrumental in New York Democratic politics and later runs for president as a Democrat, first Catholic to do so, when his father dies, when he's fairly young, the local boss goes ahead and makes sure that the family has food to eat. So there is literally a direct connection between the urban city politics and making sure people eat. You didn't expect it to go this way, did you? No, no, no. But it's it's incredibly interesting to me. And I'm grateful to it because it's a whole different way of thinking. And it makes me think about something that I've had trouble understanding, which is the opposition of different political groups to things like SNAP and feeding people who need food. School lunch, for example, came about because in the uh, Second World War, you know, just following on the heels of the Depression, there were too many soldiers who were too undernourished to be able to become soldiers. But I've been fascinated as it's played out by this kind of tension between people like me who think people deserve safe, healthy food, and we can't have a society unless we have a well-fed populace, and people who think that should be churches and social groups. And I, I don't understand that tension, why it's wrong for the government to be involved in it, and why there's such an argument that it should be uh, you know, private charity. 
or the goodness of the community. So so this is so, so much longer a conversation than you want to have because it has to do with the with the political ideologies in America. But what you're describing when you talk about the idea that churches and local community organizations should handle the issue of food insecurity and poverty in their communities is a vision of society that has its own traditional roots in America, but really comes under fire after the crash of 1929, because until the crash of 29, it was possible to argue that charity belonged at the local level simply because so many people before that crash had access to being able to move to the country to a farm. And so in the Panic of 1893, for example, or the Panic of 1893, the 1870s Panic, it really was possible for people in the cities to go home. Now, that didn't mean they had plenty of food, but it meant that at least ideologically there was a place for them to go. So when the crash hits in 29, the Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, literally says to Herbert Hoover, says, don't do anything. All these people can go home to their farms. And Hoover, to his credit, had fed Belgium during World War One. He'd been the person in charge of making sure that food was distributed through Belgium and had done a very good job at it. And he's like, I can't let Americans starve after just keeping all the Belgians alive. So he was like, I'm not really sure we should make this be local. And what this really highlighted was the fact that that really was no longer possible. And so what FDR does in 33, when he is elected after the 32 election, is he basically takes that urban machine version of we got to make sure people have food, and he brings it to the federal level. And he does it primarily through Frances Perkins, who's his secretary of labor, because she's very aware of the differences between the rural culture in which she grew up and the urban culture that had led to things like the Triangle Shirtwaist Mm. Fire. So... There is, by the 30s, this sense that, yeah, the government should make sure people have food to eat. But, of course, there's a backlash, especially from the the Hoover wing of the Republican Party that says, no, 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 you don't want the federal government to start getting involved in things like social welfare and business regulation and infrastructure projects because those really belong to the private sector. And the best way for society to move forward is for private businessmen to go ahead and run things themselves because they're much more efficient and they'll do a much better job than the government ever can do. And basically, that's the ideological struggle with which we are still um, obsessed in America today. Should the government, in fact, provide a basic social safety net and promote infrastructure and regulate business, as mm-hmm. people like you and, and, and I will admit me think? Or should we turn everything over to business because that's really much more efficient and you'll get really the, the best people running things so you don't have to worry about corrupting American society through, um, you know, a redistribution of wealth that will come from taxes that provide the money to do things like provide lunches. Just a curious little thought. Was it Hoover or FDR that the a chicken in every pot? When did that become such a potent image? That, that actually was neither one of them. That was Huey Long, who was a populist out of Louisiana. And I can tell you an interesting story about Huey Long and me, if you're interested. But FDR actually had to face not only uh, the fascists on one side of him, and people forget America had a fascist movement as well as the rest of Europe. He had to face the fascists on one hand, and on the other hand, he had challengers from the left. And one of those challengers was Huey Long, who was a populist governor of Louisiana. And he had this plan to make every man a king, as he said, and to guarantee that there was a chicken in every pot. And just so 
people are aware, chicken was considered a fairly high-class food compared, for example, to pork bellies, bacon. So one of the complaints in the late 19th century was that the reason that farmers were poor is because they were insisting on fancy foods like chicken as opposed to eating what they should be eating, which was pork belly, which was bacon. So basically you wanted the bacon fat and molasses. Often that's why you have so many foods that are bacon and molasses because mm-hmm. molasses has iron in it. And, and so people could get some nutrition from cornbread and molasses and bacon because you get the fat and some protein and iron from the molasses and then the the calories from the corn. So he was saying that you too can have a chicken. You could, People can eat chicken, which is, like I say, not the bottom of the food chain. Um, and all you have to do is enact my policies. And so what, this is one of the things that makes FDR tack to the left is because Huey Long and people like him become popular enough that Huey Long looks like he's going to challenge FDR for the presidency. Hmm. Well, he knew a good slogan. Yeah, yeah, and it's lasted all these years. Every man a king and a chicken in every pot. I remember being a high school kid and watching Triumph of the Will, Lini Riefenstahl's documentary, and the teachers asked us, what do you see? And I said, I see people who look so well-fed and so healthy, and they've just come out of a war. How can that be? And I think that was the first time I understood that food as propaganda could be so powerful. That sort of stayed with me since then. Well, and and if you think about your concerns as a, a, a human being, what is more powerful than fears for your children's safety? And what is more visceral than not being able to feed your children? And you know, this is one of the things that really jumps out in the Depression is, is people saying, I can't feed my children. My children are dying. Do something because I can't feed my children. Well, you're pouring creosote on the oranges in California so that people can't eat them. And farmers are dumping milk in the roads. And there's a real sense that something is very wrong with the American system if this is, in fact, what's going on, that people are literally ruining ruining food at the same time that other people in our country are starving to death. I'm speechless because that's so accurate. That part of it, that system, that disconnect between what we can grow, what we could do, and how we get it to people keeps many people up at night. And somehow I feel that that conversation is just not making it into the larger political discourse. Isn't it funny? Because it seems like it ought to. You know, yes, because it's also a conversation about the environment and about health and about, um, the you know, what it means to live in an extraordinarily wealthy society. Literally what it means as opposed to, well, I've got lots of stuff and you don't. I mean, what does it mean to be part of a society that is the wealthiest in human history? What does that look like? What should that look like as opposed to, you know, we're just going to accept things the way we are? And and the thing that I find interesting is that to me, these are questions that are intellectually interesting as well as viscerally interesting. And the fact that we don't really engage with them, well, it's, it's one of the things that makes a podcast like this about food and 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 what that means all the more important. How would you advise the government to go forward using those visceral images, that understanding that we can't have a society in which um, which is really so uh, bifurcated between the haves and the has-nots around food? What is a message that could work for the government? Fairness. 
Fairness is always the message that works. It is always the message that works, that things are not fair when somebody is gaming the system. And that is how we got to where we are now. If you think about the Reagan revolution, for example, his big argument was that, in his words, the welfare queens were gaming the system. You know, people who didn't want to work, people of color, women, feminists. And you can imagine how, I mean, not imagine, you know how that played out with... um, Rush Limbaugh, for example, and and people on the right, you know, what what they did was they attracted a following by insisting that the system was rigged against an interest group, in that case, largely white men, which are just as much an interest group as any of the people they accuse of being an interest group. But the bottom line, I think, is that humans, and maybe I shouldn't speak for humans because I'm not a sociologist um, or a psychologist, but certainly Americans care deeply about fairness. Look at our society today. And I say it's not fair. It's not fair. Certain people are not treated the same way before the law. And and that's not fair. And similarly, um, when the system is rigged in such a way that some people have literally rigged it so that they are not bearing their full share of the cost of our society. It's just not fair. So one of the words I always look for in politics is when people start talking about what is fair. And that, I think, if you think about the way even children act, they recognize that it's not fair for one kid to get 10 cookies and the other kid to get, you know, a crumb. And and so when I look at how we frame where we are in our society, it always comes back to the idea that we should be equal before the law and we should not uh, create a system in which some people are treated as if they are better or worse than everybody else. Can we talk about food? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On a lighter note. How about the Popeye story? Okay. Which I do know about. As in Popeye the Sailor Man story? Popeye the Sailor Man. Love what it. Does, what does Popeye eat? Love it. I'd love to hear about Popeye but and why. Sweet. I mean, you know, I I have never understood why spinach got such a bad name in the first place, but that's another story. <laughs> All right. So, so let's think that one through. What does Popeye eat? Spinach. Spinach, right? Okay, so when is Popeye? Popeye's early 20th century, right? So think yeah. about American culture at the time. If you, I just talked about how, you know, people are eating pork bellies, right? That, that, and, and the big idea of calories and fat and getting, you know, sugar and things in the late 19th century, meat and America's trying to turn its diet into that kind of food. What do they stop eating? They stop eating that you know, crap that grows out of the ground. You know, they stop focusing on vegetables and start moving away from from the vitamins and minerals that are in vegetables. And then that gets compounded when the Southern European immigrants start coming to America, the Italians especially, focusing on tomatoes and greens and spinach. So that becomes sort of the un-American diet as opposed to beef, for example, which is, of course, huge in America once you get the ability to refrigerate, first of all, to, to butcher, you know, so you don't have to move beef on the hoof back to the east, but so you can butcher in Chicago, for example, and put beef on refrigerated railroad cars and move it back to the east. The government recognizes, as you say, around World War One that people are, are really badly malnourished. So what do they do? They have Popeye the Sailor Man with his giant muscles, and what does he do? He pops cans of spinach in his mouth to convince people that they should be eating vegetables again. And what's his girlfriend's name? Olive oil. You know, again, healthy, healthy fruits and vegetables. So he's this wonderful moment of, um, come on, Americans, let's start eating our vegetables again and, and stop thinking that it's somehow 
a, a sign of you know immigrants and poverty that you actually eat green things because none of you are getting any of your vitamins. It is fascinating. I'd never really thought about it as essentially the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that fun? <laughs> this has just been great. I know your day is busy, and I'm just so thrilled and delighted that you carved out a portion of it to talk about food. <laughs> you are from Maine. Do you know about the Maine Community Cookbook, the Bicentennial Cookbook? I do know about that. They're doing a, a podcast on community cookbooks and the history of them and the proliferation of them because it's having its moment. Well, so I, I wanted to talk about this because in that family home I talked about, we have reams and reams and reams of cookbooks, including all the community cookbooks from uh, way back in at least the beginning of the 20th century, if not some into the 19th century. Wow. And I read them for fun. And um, one of the things that fascinates me about community is that there's one recipe, one local recipe that I got when I was a kid from a woman who lived on a nearby island, and she did not really have amounts. We had to guess at them. And it sort of is this recipe for a molasses blueberry cake. And it's in virtually all of those community cookbooks going back more than 100 years at this point. And what's fascinating to me is it bounces around as to who puts that forward. And you can see this, you know, it's Kate's recipe this year. No, no, no. 20 years later, it's Lydia's recipe. And it's the same recipe that has reappeared all over that region being sent to these community cookbooks by different people. And I love that picture of the community. And one of the things that it inspired me to do was that I actually have written a similar cookbook for my family, but I did a little different twist to it. So it's all of my recipes, but it's I not only write up the recipe, I write about when we ate it and who liked it and what that particular thing meant to us. Oh, I'd love to see this. And when I think of when I and then I get my nieces and nephews, I'll have it as well as my kids and, and some of their friends have it as well at this point. You pass on, you know, the story of my mother's Thanksgiving turkey stuffing where she made a, a, a sort of odd but funny and ultimately extremely successful uh, substitution that sort of became this part of this community story. You think about the things you leave to your kids and the memories you leave and the recipes you leave. This to me, this sort of private book of what we ate and why it mattered is, um, is what I plan to leave to my children. I hate to let you go. I'd love to do another two hours of this, but, but the, day, the day beckons. Terrific. Thank you so much. It's Thank a you. pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Heather Cox Richardson. That was just great. We'll be listening to your Facebook Live, reading your daily blogs, listening to your podcast, and we hope you keep baking and your pen keeps writing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter 
at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 